Hello everyone, welcome back to the Francis Fogel Story Strategist podcast. My name is Francis Fogel and today I have a guest who I'm actually meeting for the first time called Fraser Southie. Uh, Fraser is, I'm going to actually refer to Fraser's um, LinkedIn to describe Fraser uh, because I read this and I thought it was a great description um, unsurprisingly because he is an experienced copywriter and creative advisor specializing in two areas sustainability and ESG reporting brand creation and expression um, and I also like what Fraser says next which is that he wrote uh, I first wrote about sustainability then called environment and society in the mid-1990s that makes me a bit of a pioneer and also a mature presence, which is such a lovely way of saying that he's been around the block. Um, I heard he was very experienced from my friend Beth, who I asked originally to come on the show to talk about sustainability reporting. And Beth said, oh, no, no, you want to talk to Fraser about that. And if you want an example of an absolutely banging website, please, please go to Fraser's website which is an example of one of the most confident um and creative websites um i've seen and i've seen a lot of them uh it's frasersouthie.co.uk um and on the website what fraser very cleverly does is use far less words than more which is always great um and has quoted has has included a number of testimonials from clients and fraser's work with quite a list of impressive clients in his life. Uh, one quote that he includes from MS, who he has helped with their sustainability reporting, goes like this. Um, Fraser has provided the voice of the MS Plan A report for a decade, helping us win a Best Global Sustainability Report Award for the past three years. Um, just to explain before I hand over to you, Fraser, what it is that I'm that I wanted you to come and talk about today. Um, I am helping purposeful founders in London and the Southeast um, to use stories of theirs to underpin four things that I think businesses can always do um, a bit better in, uh, or often can do a bit better in. And those four things are marketing and sales, employee engagement, not employee well-being, uh, customer loyalty, um, as opposed to customer retention, and I choose my words carefully, mm. and uh, community care. And like you, um, <laughs> I now am going to be calling myself a what do you call it mature presence in the world of corporate social uh, responsibility (CSR) as it used to be called. It's kind of adapted into CR. Um, but 20 years ago, I started writing about the public-private dichotomy and corporate sponsorship and what role it plays in society with a particular interest at that time in the arts. Um, and so my both my undergrad and postgrad this dissertations are all about corporate sponsorship of the arts. And that took me on a really interesting journey and I've kind of been banging on about it for about 20 years. So yeah, like you, I've nerded out on this for quite a while <laughs> and one of the things that I really really want to take pains to educate founders leaders of purposeful organizations 
uh, in is essentially yeah whitewashing greenwashing um first of all knowing what they mean when they say sustainability yeah. and then taking pains to really uh be honest and so that's what i wanted to have you on the show to talk about really today but i think the power of storytelling and the power of copywriting is of course something that you can talk about more widely um, yes and, yes. and that's going to be of interest to my listeners as well so welcome and may i just ask you to now tell us yeah as i said to you what is it that turns you on in the world and why have you been doing this work for such a long time and who are okay. you and where do you come from and where are okay. you <laughs> well where do i come from that's a good start and thank you for the lovely things you said about my website um there's one flaw with that wonderful website, which is really hard to update. Uh, so it's a bit out of date. And the lesson I learned from that is you need a good content management system if you're not a designer. Uh, where do I come from? I come from West London, working class background. Father's family is from sort of the West Country, farming folk, the extras in Thomas Hardy novels, really, you know, farm people. And on my mother's side, there's some exotic stuff, Argentinians who were bow and arrow makers in London in the early 19th century. That's quite fun. And I know all about this because my dad did that work. Um, moving swiftly on, went to grammar school, always loved writing. My family are very loquacious. My wife would confirm that, that to marry into my family was to marry into several generations of chatterboxes. Absolute, my mother never stopped uh, talking. And I think that's why I kind of was born hearing stories, telling stories. I sort of don't really understand what living is, if not a story that you're, is unfolding in front of you, you know, sometimes under your control and sometimes not. But anyway, and I was good at writing at school. But I got sick of studying English, so I went to university and studied sociology. And then um, I knew I wanted to write. And I sort of moved around the world a bit. I met my wife in Brighton where I was studying. She lived in London. I came to London through a friend. I got a job in breakfast television, TVAM, as it was called then. Um, and I was called a kind of production assistant but what I really did was worked in the post room uh, I then needed some money so I went to work for the Daily Telegraph not as a sexy journalist but as a selling classified advertising space for um, buying houses that sort of thing and then jobs and people would ring up or we would ring up people and ask them do you want to advertise your house in the Telegraph and if they were smart enough to say yes, uh, they would then say, well, what should I say? Uh, so in a way, the job was about writing small ads, which when I think about it, is really the basis of everything I believe about commercial writing, that you're always selling something, you know, whether it's um, a product or reassurance or, or you know, or truth. Um, and that was a really good honing ground for understanding that, you know, why why bother people with words if they're not there 
to benefit them in some way or you're not asking them to do something with what you're saying to them. And I used the small ads I wrote to get uh, a trainee copywriter place in an ad agency and did quite a bit of ad work. And then I shifted from advertising to design because I got offered the job to be a creative director of the design agency, which was a graduate recruitment agency. And then that got bought out. Sorry if this is going on a bit. That agency was bought out by a big London agency called Paulfley, which was a corporate reporting agency. So by now we're into the 90s and, you know, they're merrily producing annual reports for everyone, for loads of people, including Marks and Spencers. Um, I'm kind of creative directing them and writing the less boring bits of the reports and the kind of creative bits, you know, the features, the bits about our global markets or our people around the world. And that evolved because the clients started to say, "We hang on, we need M&S. We need to talk now about environment and society. So we need what we think is an environment and society report. And so I worked on their first report, um, which was had not much else in it, except that even then all M&S eggs were free range. Um, and there was, you know, this is pre, almost pre-carbon emissions crisis. You know, we were just merrily talking about all the nice things they were doing. Um, and finally, around the early 2000s, I got sick of working in agency. Um you know, it was that time where they were growing and then there were redundancies. I didn't get made redundant. I just left and went and worked with a friend who'd become corporate uh, comms director somewhere, did a long project. And then, as you said, um, continued to work for M&S, worked on speeches for Sir Stuart Rose when they launched the Plan A uh, project which is really was at the time a kind of groundbreaking um piece of commitment to make a hundred do a hundred things on sustainability um and also it was kind of writing revolution because you know it didn't say we've got a hundred it the, the the wording for it was plan a because there is no plan b you know, we've got to do something about this planet. And I really liked that. I liked the language. And Stuart Rose was a good person to work for on speeches because he's very plain speaking. Um, and then I kind of, in a way, I have no sustainability technical background at all. But, you know, you do one job and there aren't many people doing that job. You get asked to do others, you know. So over the years, just work for more and more and more people um, from in a way, the good, the bad and the ugly. I was thinking that, that I sit here having written about sustainability for really worthy organisations, charities, green funds, solar energy, you know, where there's no real downside. Uh, but I've also written for big, you know, oil extracting organisations and sort of, you know, banks um, and and the, the area I probably know best is retail, to be honest, um, because of M&S. I've also worked for Ferrero. 
um, Associated British Foods, Primark, the North Face, a lot of different people. So that's where I come from and where I am now. And in parallel to that, because all of that sustainability stuff is very seasonal, very report driven, you know, as a deadline, we produce the report. I do a lot of um, contrast work in summer on like just kind of branding, you know, pure brand, brand development, brand origination, telling brand stories. And I really like that um, because it's such a contrast to reports which are big and technical, you know. And my home turf, really, because I come from advertising, is like a headline and, you know, about 200. But actually, I... I quite like I I I like a page, fourteen point page. I think that's really nice. You've got enough time to tell a story, but no one's getting bored. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's who I am. That's what I do. Um, where do you want me to go next? <laughs> what do you want me to talk about next? Thank you. That was lovely. Um, and just for anyone who isn't. Um clear about what we're talking about because there's nothing like a wanker with a um <laughs> ac acronym uh so esg just to read a um uh a description i found online quickly esg reporting is the disclosure of environmental social and corporate governance data as with all disclosures its purpose is to shed light on a company's esg activities whilst improving investor transparency yeah. and inspiring other organisations to do the same, which I thought was quite a good uh, description to have chanced upon, really, because uh, we yeah. will be going into, yeah, that. I mean, they're, 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 they're two sides of the same thing, really. Um, you know, ESG has emerged, you know, they're almost linguistic choices. I think you call a thing a sustainability report when you've got a wider audience than investors, you know when there's some notional sense you might be talking to normal people. Um, ESG is more hardcore. You know, it's about um, convincing hard-bitten investors, sometimes, you know, on-side investors, that, you know, it does matter. And it really does matter because, you know, my pension fund will be in companies as your pension and everyone's pension will be, if they've got one, will be in companies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's a kind of feeling I'd rather my pension was not trashing the planet. Um, so, you know, that's important. Um, but it's interesting you saying that's a good description because, you know, there's so much, um, there's so much, there's, there's a lot of kind of waffle in what I do, you know, disclosures about concerning blah, 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 blah. And reporting language is is full of that, full of acronyms, full of weird terms that people never use in real in the in the real world. You know, if you met someone who spoke the way I write corporate reports, you'd kind of say, hey, look, I gotta go. I gotta go. <laughs> you know, I'll see you around. because uh, it's very technical. Um, and that's quite funny when you were talking about avoiding greenwash. I was trying to think of a comparison because heavy-duty corporate sustainability reports are so far from snappy greenwash 
you know, that there almost ought to be another word. It's like green, green waffle or something. You know, they're so, we have significantly reduced our scope to carbon emissions over the reporting period. We attribute this reduction to the following blah, 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 blah. You know, um, the greenwash is getting done by people in ad agencies who are having a lot more fun, I think, you know. Or, yeah, or maybe you should be feeling, well, I hear what you're saying as being, rather than a wash, it's a smoke and mirrors. It could be perceived as being so I think, I think for people. That's interesting. I, th I think the organisations I work for, I was when I was making notes about this, I think what I observe of the big corporates that I work for is one, you know, there's a set-aside team of both corporate reporters who are communicators and there's a lot of specialists in the business you know there's the guy who knows loads about water there's the guy who knows loads about biodiversity there's the carbon crew and a lot of these people you know they're scientists they come from academic backgrounds some of them have even switched from ngos etc and they're very well intentioned they're very principled. You would never meet anyone I work for who wouldn't recoil at the horror of what's happening to the world. Um, so I don't know if it's smoke and mirrors, but what I think's happened with sustainability reporting is that it's become so by specialists, for specialists, that everybody else isn't involved you know and honestly there are bits of corporate reports i write that it, i struggle to understand them and to edit them if i'm asked to you know look at them and change them as comments come in that if you gave them to a normal person they just wouldn't mean anything so in that sense it's smoke and mirrors but it's in a way i think what's worrying is it's not deliberate smoke and mirrors yeah. it's it's language losing a language losing touch with the constituents that it's uh, that it serves. Do you know what I mean? And and one of my abiding drivers for everything I do has always been that, you know, my mum or my dad should be able to understand this. And there's no excuse, even if you're writing about, you know, methane measurements in an organisation from a methane measurement expert to someone met benchmarking their methane measurement. There's no excuse for it not being really clear, you know, and for it trying to avoid jargon. And just that a well-intentioned but uninformed person could pick it up and pretty much make sense of it. Um, and that's a battle I really kind of feel I fight and when you talk about the businesses purposeful businesses or organizations you're helping at a smaller scale I think I think one thing those organizations have an opportunity to do is not go down that road is not get sucked into being so hardcore in the way they talk to the world, that they could maybe lead a bit of a quiet revolution in being clear and straightforward and honest, you know, but without going to the other extreme 
and getting all snappy and smooth and greenwashy, which is, I think, what what can happen. I think um, sustainability reporting is almost where the buck stops when it comes to all of the trauma, concern and fear that all of us as inner children are experiencing. And I went to hear the amazing Chris Anderson, who, of course, founded TED the other night at an Intelligence Squared event in London. And um, he's just published a book called Infectious Generosity and is very much, if people haven't heard him speak before or read anything by him or even aren't familiar with TED, um, he, he's kind of, he, he is himself a, a sort of real example of infectious sort of optimism and yeah. you know storytelling and generosity and you can tell that everything that he's in the business of doing is about um trying to bring good to the world basically in some way and at the end of an hour and a half of talking uh with john monson it was a really interesting conversation oh um, yeah john monson's great too isn't it yeah it was wonderful um yeah. a lady in the audience shared in the question bit that she had a disability and finds it really irritating when people um sort of generously help her but without actually asking her what it is that she needs and mm. you know what were his thoughts on that and chris's response was you know as frustrating as it is one has to remember what someone's intention might have been and to your point uh i see so many people throwing eggs at banks and rather than sort of trying to change things from within, which really frustrates me because having studied this for 20 years, I mm. have evidence to suggest that it's actually more effective to try and come in and change things from the inside than it is to shout and point fingers. And I think the reality is nobody, to your point, nobody is 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 wanting to greenwash, is wanting to create smoke and mirrors, is wanting to do harm. Um, and the question is how, as good intending, generous, kind-hearted human beings who are also in the children, can we move forward one step at a time and talk about, in a way that everybody understands, something that you know everybody should be understanding and should be reading about yeah. and talking about? That's really interesting. I mean, it's funny because, um, in a way... I don't know why, but I'm very optimistic about humans, you know. I think we're a supremely... I can't remember why, but at one point I was in a conversation about what's the defining characteristic of humans. And I actually decided it's that we're flexible and adaptable. That was my outcome. What, what, what advantages us as a species is, you know... If the world gets freezing cold, we manage to survive. And if it gets boiling hot, we seem to manage to survive. We're good at adapting. So I think we'll find a way through. And maybe that's naive optimism. Um, you know, and yet on some other level, it would feel like there isn't much reason to believe that. But I do. Um, how do we pull together? I'm a bit like you, I suppose. You know, I wouldn't... You know, if I had a higher, if I had a different ethical stance on the organisations that I have worked for and work with, 
I I wouldn't do it, would I? I would do something else. It would be unpalatable to me. Like I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't become an arms dealer. It would be off my radar and I wouldn't sell cigarettes and stuff like that. Um, so I suppose I do believe in in gradualism that change happens, you know, that it's no good getting really angry about something that isn't happening fast enough. <laughs> like I'm not talking fast enough because I've got quite a slow voice or something, you, you know. Um, and although I have no qualms and no problems with um, Greta Thunberg, for instance, or indeed, uh, you, you know, the, the quite um, aggressive protests, I just think they set different speeds of change in conflict with each other. And I think Greta Thunberg serves, a, and those people serve a really good purpose in that they are hold feet to fire and they keep making us aware. But the reality is um, that, you know, when they talk about these big things like energy transition, you know, the move from oil and gas to renewables, that is happening. And in a weird way, that's happening for cold commercial reasons as much as benign love of the planet. You know, businesses are shifting to renewables because, one, they see that oil and gas is unsustainable, literally, not only because it clogs up the earth, but because it's running out and it's getting more and more expensive to dig out. So, you know, eventually, and I think often in some respects already, cleaner energies are just more affordable. So businesses go where the money, where the money's saved. So that will happen. Do I think it's happening fast enough? No. Um, but I kind of feel, you know, maybe I'm biased because my employ my employment comes through businesses on the whole. I think, you know, that the drag on progress, it might be some corporations, obviously, but I think the real drag on progress are governments. You know, that governments aren't, for me, doing anywhere near enough that what they should be doing is massively incentivizing shifts into clean energy or, you know, anything that's renewable and sustainable and massively disincentivizing everything else, you know? And I know there's costs. And I think the trouble is if you, the paradox of a democracy is that, you know, the drive is to get reelected, not to be unpopular by saying actually fossil fuel cars should just be priced out of affordability. They just, they did just, you know, or conversely, you should throw so much money at making electric cars or, you know, affordable or just, you know, fill cities with bike lanes, just, you know, so that, you know, because consumers, like, you know, we go where, again, the savings are. And, I, and the other thing is I really don't think this is a consumer, an issue consumers can solve. I th I, it really annoys me the way I think this problem in classic form has been thrown at us as normal people, as individuals, and we're all kind of now got hair shirt experiences about, oh, my God, I should be recycling more. Oh, my God.
oh god i should be buying an air pump and you know this problem needs to be solved by global organizations who you know adjust it so that yeah i do buy an air pump instead of a gas boiler but when i buy it it's just really cheap or i get an uh, i get a green loan or a green grant to just put it in my house so yeah and and i have kids and in fact i have very small grandchildren because i'm pretty ancient um so this matters to me massively you know what i mean um i want them to live in a better world than i live in yeah mm -hmm. oh, i feel a bit teared up now <laughs> Um, yeah, but um, it's a lot. sorry, it's I've, a lot. I've rambled a bit there. That's um, all good. That's all yeah. good. Thank you. Um, so, as my brand manager Leslie, who's American, would say, it's a lot, which it is. So yeah, it is a lot. It is a lot. And I think you're it's speaking something that I just want to pick up on. Um, so when, so one of the things that came uh, out the wash for me quite quickly was that there was a lot of attention being paid to the likes of BP and Shell back in the yeah. day. Yeah, quite rightly. Um, yeah, absolutely. Therefore, I I was seeing that actually quite a lot of organisations which were doing possibly just as nearly just as much harm weren't you know were kind of falling off the radar. So one of the things that I feel not defensive of those big 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 corporations about, uh, but rather I just sort of want to keep in check is is that it's not you're all good and you're all bad and that there's quite a lot in between. Yeah. And then you know of course like I was head of corporate. Uh, development at English National Opera for a bit and we must talk oh. about singing because I've noticed yes. that you, are, you sing alto I'm a first soprano no so I'm, we, a, I'm a second bass I mean sorry bass what am I talking yeah. about obviously I'm right at the other end I'm you. so sorry obviously you're not an alto uh, but yeah. we, let's just park that for a minute I'll oh let's go. do another podcast we'll just go off in, in a amateur or you might be a professional but you know opera singing please yeah please. no well, please that's just Please, let's just park that for a minute because it's yeah. very important to me. Um, but so, yes, I did that for a bit. And um, of course, you know, one wouldn't want to take money from drugs, arms, blah, 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 tobacco. Da, 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 da. Um, and uh, yet there's this kind of bank of like, should we call them red brick as opposed to Oxbridge organisations who you know, need to, and are now thankfully being held to account as much. Yeah. But I just want to say that, right, there's there's nuance here. And then also, I, I'm going to push back on you. And um, yes, it's down to the big corporations, but, and I want to bring your farming background into it at mm -hmm. this point. So I would like to work with small uh, organisations for, num yeah. for a number of reasons. The work that I want to do with them is it would be in unwieldy and impossible if they were so big that I was yeah. having to, you know, left hand wasn't talking to right. I've got no interest anymore, having been in the city yeah, uh, of working with organisations that big from a self-preservation point of view. But also, I want to help the smaller organisations to, as I say, punch uh, with and above the big boys and girls because mm. I believe in a diversification of the... Um, of society and of the economic yeah. Uh, yeah. climate. Um, and also I think actually when you are nimble, you can um, make great tracks. So again, in between the kind of Greta and Shell is the smaller organization. Yeah. I'm also, I just want to ask you before I stop waffling, 
have you i'm going to assume you've read citizens by john yes. alexander yeah i know that book i've got a couple of other things i always um go Bring back to as sorry well. i just held up a to the yeah. screen sorry for anyone listening i've just held up citizens by john alexander um and the byline is why the key to fixing everything is all of us so i yeah no I, but i agree with that i i think um everything most good things start from small things um when i used to work for lloyd's banking group doing their sustainability work and they have a helping britain prosper plan that was their sort of big program but you know at the same time they were just stealing all those cool ideas about you know challenger banks and about monzo and stuff and trying to get in that didn't come out of them. They were far too big to ever come up with that, you know. But, you know, so fintech drives change in the big organisations. So I kind of absolutely agree. I think what small organisations do is they're, the, they're where the ideas come from. And then that filters upwards. And, you know, it, I mean, it's the model, isn't it? For, for many people, I set up a small business. It's really cool. It does things different. It's nimble. It's fast. Um, and actually, you know, I don't mind if like 20 years, 10 years down the line, it gets bought by a big company, uh, you know, because I can scale it up and also I'm made for life. So I absolutely um, believe in localism, actually. Um and that's something I was brought up to believe in because my farming, my on my father's side, that that farming is associated or comes from a West Country Methodist tradition. And my grandfather was a a dyed in the wool Labour member and Labour mayor. You know, my father is a, a eight in, the, in his mid eighties. My father is still an activist i sent me a photo yesterday of him on a picket line save a post office in southall where i grew up um so your um your slogan um i wrote it down what is it your three words really resonate with me i think um better braver bolder no, is better, that's better. my other yeah my other company yeah better, no no bolder, i really braver. do believe <laughs> I, I think and as i say what what i think is tough for small organizations who wanted to be involved in that sort of you know sustainability is one is that although they they sit you know they would sit below the 250 million or 250 employees, X million pound turnover threshold for having to report on all of their carbon, that they're going to lack the technical expertise to really maybe know what, what changes really make a difference. But then I think that's when people like the person who's not on your show, Beth Derry, really come into play because Beth, it's not only a great writer, but she has a kind of really, I think she did have, or was getting together, a really nice offer, which was to say, I'll be a small-scale specialist in sustainability and I'll work with your small-scale business. And, you know, you don't need to get bogged down in all these EU regulations. You don't need to 
know the difference between a scope one, a scope two, and a scope three carbon emission. I'll come in and I'll sit with you and we together will work out what you can do to be sustainable, to be ethical, to be part of your community. And then we'll set realistic plans, you know, to make measurable change. And I, just, I think, you know, I would rather do that. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful model, really. Um, can we talk about the farming thing i want to i want to share yeah sure you. sorry yeah please no Harry. no not at all this this segues beautifully into it so i i want to make you aware that when i fantasize about the kind of businesses that i want to work with now at this point in my life so i yes thank you i run a i also co-founded a community for coaches or people helpers as i like to call mm. them called better bolder braver <clears throat> so that takes a couple of a day or two of my life up um, and that's wonderful. And I have about 60 members in there at the moment. Um, and I love that work very much. And Francis Fogel, Story Strategist, is the one that this podcast is dedicated to. Okay. Um, and the kind of people that I would like to work with on that front are founders and leaders of, of, of these purposeful companies in London and the Southeast that are not very big. And when I fantasize about who they might be, often what comes to mind is a, um, a piece of land or a building. Uh, so a piece of land a somebody who's taken over from their parents from their grandparents a farm that they have gone so far gone some way already to have to pivot because they've had to um for income uh and they might be uh they might have a glamping site they might have a yoga studio they yeah. might be hosting corporate events um and so they will have a really interesting background, a really interesting story. I'm reading Wilding at the moment by Isabella Tree. Uh, uh, and so the book, you'll have to forgive me because I do not have a background in farming. But what I'm trying to educate myself around at the moment is, you know, the um, I sh let's call it the shadow side of, you know, British history um, in all of its guises. Um, I have to say to you that I'm the daughter of a psychotherapist. Um, and uh, so for okay. me... The term shadow side is just something I've kind of been brought up with. Um, and I, one of the things that actually really bothers me is, is people in marketing and sales and advertising who are in the business of helping people present these very shiny, toxic stories um, without holding space and giving people the opportunity to kind of own the shadow sides of those stories. And of course, with farming, there is a shadow side. And, you know, as an example... Um, after the war, everybody was encouraged to dig for victory, which essentially meant to wipe out a lot of the wildlife in this country and turn yeah. all of the land into arable land. And there was just an absolute unnecessary excess of grain and milk. I don't want to go into it. I mean, I'm not vegetarian, but I, I've read bits of this book and others where I've just gone, oh, can't, can't, <laughs> can't deal. Um, but so you've got these people who are sitting on these massive bits of land that they're having to pivot because British farming is not what it was. And they've got these sort of shadow stories that they need to be able to kind of talk about and own and, and digest and process and say, you know what, we're going to be citizens. We're going to show up as farm owners. We're rich. It's not our fault. Or we were rich. It's not our fault. You know, we're landed gentry. It's not our fault. You know, we are sitting on a gold mine of land and stories and we want to be citizens and we want to turn this into a community minded project. Yeah. You know, and capitalize on the space and the heritage that we are sitting on. 
um, or maybe it's a listed building that's a pub that yeah, yeah, yeah. used used by the smugglers in the 18th century. Um, and, you know, in the wake of all of the Young's pub chains and, you know, things like the pig down the road, they're really struggling because they haven't got a really posh kitchen, garden and spa area. Um, but they have this incredible story and an amazing building. So it's like, how can we help them mm. be OK with their history? And then, as I say, start doing marketing and sales better. Keep people that work for them happier and more engaged. The other book I'm going to hold up for Fraser at this juncture is uh, Seth Godin's The Song of Significance. I don't know if you've... No, I don't know that. that. Seth Godin being the godfather of marketing, of course. I'm always on the lookout for a good... Yeah. So this one's great because Seth writes a lot, obviously, about all of the marketing things. But this one is about feeling significant in the world and working with organisations to help people feel like they're part of the story. And that's why I choose the phrase employee engagement not well-being because so much learning and development and HR um, has, you know, understandably thought that putting a nice yoga workshop in the diary or making sure they've got the right childcare vouchers available for people is the way to make people happy in the workplace. But of course, I think we're seeing more and more that it's about making people feel part of this, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, I, I love your model of... Um the farm having the land and that's interesting to me because one of the most enjoyable projects I worked on recently was for a, a green energy a solar energy fund and when I say there's no downside there really wasn't because what they do is they get people to invest I mean unless you're you know you don't like the whole market model of, of investment and capitalism but set that aside their their purpose was to get people to invest in starting more and more relatively small scale solar farms across the UK, and there was a nice spin story to that. Not spin story, a spin off because it was genuine. That you know the nice things about solar panels now is that you can plant them on a bit of land that you're not really using as long as they face south, and then you can use their model was to use the space as a biodiversity hub. So you let the land around the panels, which are raised a bit wild, and they then become, you know, little uh, eco corridors, which bring pollinators onto farms. And, you know, you could even graze on them. And their findings was that far from you know, far from farmers hating the intrusion of solar farms onto their land, if they were done properly, they become really collaborative ventures because the farmer obviously is allowed, takes some of the energy, the rest is sold back into the grid. And, uh, you know, good traditional or non, non sort of hyperchemical ways of farming are encouraged because pollinators are coming and yet when I, you look at the government they've this government in my view has tried to fetishize solar just to win a few votes by saying you know we promise you we won't scar this landscape with any more solar panels but you know i'd rather i'd rather look at a picture of a few solar panels with some nice wildflowers around them than a than you know a great big sort of uh you know a fracking site 
Um, so I, I, I do think, and yeah, I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? How you're talking about the bright, shiny marketing stories, whilst whilst writers can be of great benefit, sometimes the tendency of the writer is because, you know, my background's advertising, not journalism. And I used to work on a project together with a journalist. And what I found interesting was that his drive was to find the truth behind the story. And perhaps to my shame, my interest was in telling the story. I didn't really kick up much about what we would be being told to say, but I have a real interest in language and I wanted, you know, It's an awful thing to say, but if you ask me to tell a lie, I want to tell a really beautiful lie, really well written, you know, and the same is for truth. But I think what I'm saying is you have to be careful because writers can be part of a problem because, you know, with all good intention, if you love writing, if someone says to you, come and sell something for me, you can get caught up in the, oh, I really want to sell this and forget that it's actually not worth buying you know what I mean so yeah I think we need to I, I, I think, think we none have of to... us are bad when there's no one in the world that is ill intent I'd like to think right I think no well that. maybe some maybe maybe, maybe but even those people who are doing the most horrendous things now one would you know probably like to well not like but I would prefer to imagine that just not stable frankly and yeah um, no no I know what you, you know, mean as opposed I think to... they're not They're not, They're not to be well, put in positions uh, of authority. And the fact that they are says more about the people voting them in. You know, we cannot point a finger and abjure ourselves of responsibility. We all have a part to play, even the writers. And, you know, it's not, as I say, you know, for some people it's, you know, they're really rich. It's not their fault. You're an amazing writer. It's not your fault. So, yes, you've got caught up, turned on and brought in and paid to come up with wonderful stories. Where does that leave you now? It leaves you... in a position of having seen, uh, read, digested, had to kind of get your head around some pretty punchy, complex things in order to tell a story that is uh, clear, that your grandpa could understand, yeah. um, but also that's, yes, compelling and good for the investors. But now is the now what, right? So now what do people like us do with that knowledge and with that power and that ability to persuade and that ability? We can pivot quickly. Yes. Um, I want to say, because we're we're actually coming up for time, which is always amazing for me when I have these amazing conversations. We we will have another one, I'm sure. Um, that where I'm sitting on a gold mine now and, and having these wonderful conversations on the podcast and, and just having amassed over 20 years friends in... the world of marketing sales uh mm. and uh you know hr lnd user experience community care all the rest of it is that when i work with a, a founder or a leader um i am able to point them to experts if needs be so for example if i were to be needing somebody to come in and write some reporting about why somebody was doing amazing work on on a farm yeah you know, yeah i yeah, would know yeah. that i could call you right i you yeah. know and And it's that candid conversation of we really want to be honest. We really want to be doing the right thing in the world. How can this report, how can this um, sustainability Absolutely. report actually push the dial for people in our community, for our people who work here, for our, you know, for our 
customers to know that we are someone worth investing in and we are you know whether that's yeah, time yeah. and energy and you know customers. those networks are there aren't they you know um but we can only move the dial in a nimble fashion if we are in the position of you know yeah working with smaller organizations very purposeful passionate people maybe it's because they want to step away and they want a legacy plan that's robust maybe it's because mm -hmm. they feel alone um and they or they have a high turnover of staff and they really want people to feel more engaged to your point earlier it might be the bottom line that's actually propelling this but that's okay it doesn't matter yeah no no absolutely absolutely um i mean i i would love personally you know i work have worked with a lot of large organizations but i've done things with smaller things organizations i would like to work you know, you know, in a way, what you're saying, I wish there was a parallel level for all of people who have comms, different sort of comms specialisms to kind of come out of where that, you know, the surface that they play on, like, you know, and what in a way makes, sustains them financially and move to a level where there was a network of a kind of more benignly intended intention to move the dial you know it, you know what stops people people being together is an ability to come together do you know what i mean it's just it takes and interestingly i thought one of the things i thought in lockdown when i talked about humans being adaptable is no one really organized lockdown for us but as communities from as far as i can see and with the help of technology we actually did it you know uh, we could have gone on living some people would get suffering terribly but if we'd started to redistribute what's necessary we could have kept the roads empty. I just keep, I always think of how beautiful it was rather selfishly where I live and how quiet it was and how there were no aeroplanes and, you know, and obviously people in like hospitality industries were dying and, and needed help. But, you know, I kind of think, I, I think I, because uh, I am optimistic, I, I was one of those fools who thought maybe we'll never go back maybe some it's changed forever but i do think it made people get really good at networking you know although we weren't allowed to see each other mm -hmm. it forced us to think about how you can connect uh more how important connection is um i mean i built two businesses as a woman with two tiny children one of whom has got medical needs because yeah. i was able to work at home so yeah. um i think from an inclusivity and diversity point of view yes it's kind of gone back but now we are all aware that there is other ways there's way i had a wonderful uh yeah it's moved yeah. on the show talking about um what they call work style and just they are champions of it doesn't have to be one way you know no. so yeah i mean it was a horrific time but um, you know, I think you're right that we've we've seen that we can adapt. We've seen that we can be creative with how we work and who we work with, and we have choice. And you know, as John Alexander says in Citizens, 
we can go outside and pick up the dog shit from outside our own front door. And then, you know, there's another great story in the book of, um, you know, a couple who get a boom box out and just, you know, get the attention of everyone on the street. And then once they're all out, they give them all bin bags and say, should we just tidy up the street? And yeah, let's yeah. start there. Let's start there. Instead of waving our fingers at the poor inner children that are the politicians of this world, who, as you say, really are just in the business of trying to get reelected. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Just, just turn our attention to actually doing some shit ourselves. I mean... I know this very clearly and I live in awe of them slightly because my mum is now dead, but my mum was disabled with polio from the age of three. So she was in a wheelchair quite early in her life because she had joint and muscle deterioration. In their 60s, my mum and my dad, through their local church, which is multi-ethnic because they lived in Southall too, you know, high Asian population, West London community. Without any support, they just set up a toddler group for um, to take the children of people from the church, but from anyone. And it grew to be about 150 kids attending this thing, like, so mums could go to work and... Um, and my mum was sponsor, was nominated for one of those, uh, like, you know, um, ITV Wonder Citizen things and didn't win. But, like, it was staggering. But in a way, I think that's happening everywhere, you know. Um, people do stuff, you know. Where I live, I live in a little kind of estate of flats and... There's a bit of, you know, a bit of kind of petty bureaucracy about the committee, but people do stuff. And as I say, I mentioned my father earlier, you know, I can't remember the number of campaigns he just gets on, you know. He just says there's a meeting about they want to redevelop, you know, want to build houses on an old gas works in West London, and we've got to make sure that they really do put um, social housing in that. So I'm getting up, I'm 85, I'm going to take my row later, I'm going to make two bus journeys and I'll be in that meeting, you know. And then I'm like, and he's like, do you want to come? And I'm like 30 years younger and I'm, well, I'm a bit tired. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, but, you know, if you prod me, you know, I sit at a desk for my life. But I think, like you say, if you make, if you play the beatbox, they will come. <laughs> or boombox. Beatboxing is Boombox, yeah, you know. That, Beatboxing that's... is the boots and cats thing. Can you do it? Boots and cats. No, but I think we Different. want to be galvanised. I think people... If like... I wasn't running a community over there, I would not have the faith to do this thing over here because I, having run a community for three years online, yeah, to lockdown. I am now so um, warmed by, incentivized by the power of people to come together and do good that I have all the confidence to apply it to what I want to help founders of businesses like imagine. Yeah, yeah. Because I know I've seen it at work, and I I made it work myself. And who am I? I'm just a mum, right? From North. Oh, it's London. brilliant what you're doing. <laughs> I, you know, I I'm the sort of person. I have a lot of ideas. I was creative director. I have that kind of brain you know if you Myers-Briggs me I'm the one who's in the room to make to have the ideas um 
but one of my flaws is I I'm not a great completer finisher, although I've had to learn to be to do these long reports. But I'm so in awe of people who, you know, I think about maybe I could have a podcast, maybe I could have a blog. So to 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 sit and talk to someone who's actually got a podcast, it's like, whoa, 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 well done, go you. Um, go there's you. something of stupidity about it, probably, and naivety. But anyway, um, on that note, it's been an yeah. absolute pleasure. What choir do you sing in or what opera company? Oh, I sing in actually another good cause where I live in Blackheath, uh, South East London, not exactly the poorest part of the world, near Lewisham, Deptford. There's what's called the Blackheath Community Opera. And it, every year we put on a, a big opera in a local hall, which is a big uh, Blackheath concert hall. And the glory of it is that at one end you have professional singers. We had... Uh, Matthew Rose, for instance, is a bass singer who sung at Met in wherever. Are you, are you still there? You froze. The New York. Oh, you're Met. just sitting still. Anyway, yeah. okay. you get a professional conductor. Professional... I do that thing where I'm so in enwrapped with what yeah. someone's saying. People Director think I'm at one end, Sorry. and they pretty much do it for nothing. And mm. then at the other end, on stage when we perform, you've got kids from special needs schools. And I do it because I can sing and read music. But I do it because it's amazing. And for two performances, I did Dido and Aeneas, and then we did La Bella then. And for both of those, I was like the buddy of an 18-year-old guy with profound learning difficulties. And, you know, um, I mean, it's just such a beautiful thing to do. And if you sing, you also know there's nothing more coming together than singing funny enough we're doing dido and aeneas ah, uh, yeah. at our next concert the finchley yeah. choral society but funnily enough i was conceived in uh blackheath because that's where my parents lived when they got oh, married right. and yeah so there you go all oh, right yeah oh dido is a lovely me... thing beautiful song yeah it's amazing Gorgeous. um can you send me details of your concert and your next yeah song? i'm happy to post it along with the show notes of the show Thank you, people, for listening. If you want to get in touch with Fraser, the best way is via website, via LinkedIn. Well, actually, the um, go LinkedIn, and if you wished to share my email, because uh, my I think email I'll share your web... LinkedIn. I'll share your LinkedIn. Share my LinkedIn because yeah. my email via my website for some reason doesn't seem to be working. It's more that if you post emails all over the place, you're more. Yeah, no, don't do that. Sound, you're right. So let's not. Do you're that. right. Um, but I'm happy to share your LinkedIn, of course. And it's been an absolute pleasure. I don't think this is yeah for me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Fraser. Thanks. <laughs>